0: Welcome back to the Music History Project. Today we're going to focus on the noted bassist, songwriter, and studio musician TM Stevens. We hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino.
0: I am Suzanne Del Fiorentino.
1: And
2: I'm Alex Rossner.
1: All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org/library. Well, I'm so glad that we have this opportunity, you guys. Alex, Suzanne, thanks for joining us. This is just so fun to reach back and uh, pull out this wonderful interview that we captured several years ago at the NAMM show with the noted, as Suzanne said so eloquently, uh, bassist and songwriter and studio musician, T.M. Stevens. This guy has more energy than just about anybody else you could name, and he is so flamboyant and fun to be around. He's always a draw at the NAMM show. We've seen him in many booths over the years, particularly Warwick, sometimes at court uh, back in the day, and always draws a crowd because people just like being around this guy. And that's exactly how I felt when I got to do this interview with him.
2: And one thing we might not, not everybody might know, is that he's a very strong music advocate. He does workshops with uh, children and. uh, He basically spreads the word about
1: music all around well said so there's lots to talk about but maybe we should just start the interview and we'll chime in from here here and there just to uh, get some perspective but uh, I think a good place to start is just to have you guys hear the exciting voice and energetic person that is TM Stevens
3: Oh, hey, how you doing out there? This is T.M. Stevens, and what I was doing is what a lot of the kids don't do anymore. And that's play music. My mom, God bless her, man. She had what we call, and most of y'all wouldn't know this, 45s. Those little funny black things that spin around on a spindle. And I used to come out on a Saturday morning, what is that? And I'd hear, good God, huh? I can't stand, good Remember that? can't stand it, and I'm like, what is that, Mom? And she said, what's well, James Brown's son, or Marvin Gaye, or Sam Cooke, or Gladys Knight and the Pips, y'all remember that? And I was like, wow, I love this, I love this. So I got into music because of her playing those 45s, not DVDs, CDs. And then, lo and behold, I wanted to learn guitar. I was in the Boy Scouts. And the scout leader said, well look, I'll teach you guitar if you come, because I need somebody to play with. But the guitar wasn't my thing. I kept listening to the bass. And that's how I started. And because I followed my passion and my dream to play, I didn't choose the bass. The bass chose me, and I ended up playing with all my heroes, including James Brown. I don't believe it. I did it. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember getting your first bass? Yes, it was um, in Harlem. Uh, I don't know if people know where Harlem is, but that's New York. And I used to go to Harlem and sit outside Small's Paradise, The Baron. This is going back now. And I was too young, and they called me Youngblood, and I couldn't get into clubs. So I'd get a milk crate and sit outside and listen through the the door. And when the musicians took a break in between sets, because they had to play four sets then, four or five sets, I would talk to them, and it would turn out to be George Benson and those guys. How did you do that? What did you? How? What? How? How? And after a while, they got to know me, and they would sit on the sidewalk with me and show me what they did, how they played, and that's how I learned. So it was the school of on the street, and by sitting out there, that was my school of music. I didn't get to go to Berkeley or, or anything like that. So I learned right on the street. And George Benson and them said to me, "Sati, you gotta follow your dreams, and your dreams will follow you." What? What does that mean? Believe it, see it, and you'll do it. And subsequently, I went to the Apollo Theater. Do you know that is? And I used to watch all the James Brown shows. And I'd go at 12 noon, and they'd show cartoons, Three Stooges, Betty Boo, for those of you who don't know that, forget it. And then the drums would go, ladies and gentlemen, James! And I would see all his shows. Sit in the balcony, just like... One day, really quickly, I went round backstage towards the end of the show. And he came out and he jumped in his limo and uh, I knocked on his window and he rolled it down. What? Mr. Brown, one day I wanna play with you. And he gave me, of course, stay in school. When you get out, get a job. Don't do drugs, you'll do fine, ha! Rolls the window up. Pulls off. And I'm standing in the backstage of the follow. 20 years later, I'm sitting there playing. Remember that? Yeah. Living in America. And so I'm sitting in the studio, and the singers are caught in traffic. It's Friday night. Dan Hartman, remember him? He was doing the record, and and the the singers couldn't come. And he walked out of the studio and said, I want backgrounds on, it. I want them now. How are you fired? The producer said, well, what do you want me to do? Get him to sing. I don't sing. You're singing. I'm singing. You don't say no to Mr. Brown. You had to call him Mr. Brown. He went to dinner, and I got on a mic and sang, Living in America. The producer said, that's what I want. They did it eight times. That was my vocal debut. (laughs) That's me singing that and playing the bass. And from there, I realized that if you really believe in something and you follow it, you're going to have ups and downs, but eventually you'll get there. So 35 years later here, I am still funking this thing. (laughs) And that's the story of that. was
1: beautiful. Here I am. That is so cool. Yeah, Yeah, I knew you did the bass on that, but I didn't know about the vocals. That's all my vocals. That's
3: wild. And I ended up joining the Pretenders. And um, we went to London, Air Studios. And again, for the young people, that's where the Beatles recorded. And the producer said, now Mr. Brown wants your voice on all the record. Yeah, but I'm not allowed to do that. You know, Chrissy was saying, you're in the Pretenders, you stay Pretenders. So I would go, oh, I'm tired, and yawn." And I'd leave the studio and I'd go down and get my car to go to the hotel. And I'd go into uh, another studio in London and I did all the backgrounds. That's how I ended up doing it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you didn't actually do it the same time as Mr. Brown?
3: Well, I mean, for that one track, he couldn't get the, the lead vocal without that background on it. Oh, okay. So that one, he went to dinner because all the musicians had gone home. Hmm. We'd done hmm. the album, but I wanted to see my hero hmm. sing. And so because of that, I stayed in the studio and I was kind of just sitting in the corner on the couch trying to be invisible. And he walked out into the studio and looked around, sing! And I went, I can't sing. Sing! I'm singing. But because of him pushing me to sing, now I've become a singer. That's really wild. That's how I did it. (laughs) He made me do that. Wow. So he's a teacher. Miles Davis, when I played with him in 78, is not only to play with him, they're teachers. Joe Cocker, Tina, all of them. And that's what our job is now, to teach the ones coming up, so that they can teach the next ones coming up. But the business has drastically changed, so we gotta get it back. Yeah, It's changed.
1: So as we continue with the uh, podcast dedicated to our interview from the NAM Oral History Programs Collection, T.M. Stevens is telling us some amazing stories. I told you this guy was energetic, and I love that James Brown story. Absolutely love it. Um, fantastic. And his passion for music isn't just in his playing and in his songwriting, but in the way that he wants to encourage other people to play as well, which I think is a fantastic thing. Uh, he talked a little bit about uh, George Benson and working with um, James Brown, also uh, The Pretenders. But, you know, there was a couple of artists that he didn't really talk too much about uh, during this interview. And I kind of wish he had because I have since his interview um, heard him in recordings with Steve Vai, Tina Turner, um, Billy Joel, uh, Joe Cocker. Just an amazing list of people that he's worked with over the years. So uh, getting this snapshot of some of the stories is great, but I kind of wish this was like a three hour interview because I'm sure he could have told us a lot more.
2: That is very true. And uh, the next segment is about T.M. Stevens' uh, instruments that he's playing, uh, starting out with the very first bass that he had in his hands.
3: In Harlem, once again, I was sitting on the box watching the people. I had no bass. I was playing bass on an old guitar. And there was a guy on 131st Street in Harlem, unfortunately, had a drug problem. And uh, he needed his business, and um, he had a a Zimgar bass. It was some cheesy, glued-together bass. And he said, look, I I need some money. And so I gave him 10 bucks and got my first bass. And with this first bass, I started playing what they call after-hour places. I don't know if you know those. They were illegal clubs, because I was too young to play in a real club. And I took this raggedy bass, and that's how I started playing. And sure enough, man, the people who came to the club started tipping me, oh, you're getting better, you know, as I started to get a little better on it. And it was a $10 base, until I got my very, very, very first Fender, which I still have. (laughs) And then I met Mr. um, Hans Peter in Warwick, and I've been with him now for 20, going on 26 years. Is that right? Yeah, I don't move around a lot, because I'm one of those, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Also, if I'm sitting here with my bass and some kid, I want a bass like that. And then all of a sudden next week I change to something else. That's not fair to him or her. So I try to stay, you know, loyal and work on the instruments. Of course, the instruments have to be good for me. I'm not gonna play it just because my name is on it. Yeah. I'm pretty demanding.
1: Well, you did a lot of um, changes, right? You had a lot of uh, thoughts uh, about the design and so on when you got to Hans Peter. Is yes.
3: Correct? Yes, I can't design a base and sit in my living room. So I get on a plane. We get together. We discuss it. We make it. Nope, no, no. Okay, almost. Uh-uh. Bang. Then he made it, you know. What
1: were some of the changes that you asked for or wanted?
3: Well, it's all in the woods. All my my woods in this base, this particular one, are all African. And they're all expensive woods. So we have to alter some of it because, you know, any artist is going to want, well, like Yo-Yo Ma, if you know who he is, you know, he has a couple of Stradivarius. Well, obviously, we can't go around and buy a million-dollar Stradivarius, you know, but as an artist plays, you want the best of the best of the best of the best. But how do you make that affordable to... Joe Casanova, who just got out of high school, that wants to buy a bass. So we make it still high quality, but you have to change some of the materials so that it's more affordable to make. Hmm. So that's what I'm working on now. We're doing R&D for that.
1: Very cool. Yeah. 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 And And um, what I was in, interested also is in, in the pickup design and, and the placement. That's slightly different than what they were doing before.
3: Yeah, well, I've always used their pickups and um, the MECs. And, I mean, I went through pickups like you wouldn't believe. And it's just, I don't think it technically. You know, some people are very, well, the angle of the dangle of the fangle goes to the mangle and it makes the dangle. That's not me. I engineer my records, too, and I don't sit there. Well, the EQ of this so many, I close my eyes and I turn a button. That's it. Then I look at what I did, and I can see what it is. So I let the technicians keep changing, keep positioning, and then I just play, that's it, and I choose it. So I'm not gonna sit here and tell you, well, I know how many watts of the, I don't. I'm highly just creative, and when I hear it, I know it. So that's what we did. And then I picked an African bass, because I happen to be, I happen to be a fan of Shaka Zulu, and I'm a Leo lion. And then we just went through a lot, and then I had this, and I have my name, Maps of Africa. Check that out. Well, yeah, I mean, the whole idea is, in this company, now we have Larry Graham with us, who's a good friend of mine from 25 years, but Bootsy and I and Larry Graham are like cartoon characters on different ends of the spectrum, and we just complement each other. So we got all the lights and the sunglasses and the bingles and the bangles. But under all that stuff, there has to be a basement to any house. Otherwise, and a foundation, otherwise it collapses. So we have to be real players. So it's not all about lights, glitter and glitter and no substance. So we all work on our art. I still practice. Mm. So the lights are cool, but you better be able to play over the lights.
1: Well, I think it's absolutely fascinating to hear TM talking about his instruments, of course, um, not just playing them, but designing them and improving them along the way. Of course, he did a lot of work with uh, Cort in the early days of his career. He had a signature model called the Funk Machine, which I think is fantastic. And then, of course, he worked later with uh, Warwick uh, for many years as well. So just a really neat fascination uh, uh, with the instrument that he plays because he wants to improve on it. Dan, how did you pull out Court out of your hat? Because my very first Nam show I went to, I saw him in the court booth and then later realized that he is not really associated with them as much as he is with Warwick. So it was kind of a rare opportunity that I had in the early days of my career at Nam seeing him there. And, of course, he was just funking it up. I mean, he was just playing that bass like you wouldn't believe. And it was very intriguing and almost mesmerizing. That was, a, yeah, an experience I won't forget. Thanks for asking.
2: And he did the same thing at the Warwick booth. He would play and he would just play the bass and he would hold it to the audience and they would play (laughs) the bass for him. It was just he always drew a huge crowd. And it's it's been super amazing seeing him
1: at the NAMM show. No doubt about it. And that's where I got to do my first interview with him. The first time I sat down and chatted with him was there at the NAMM show. And then not too long after, I don't know the exact dates, but I would say probably within the year, maybe a year and a half after that interview, uh, Alex and I were in Germany and ran into him at the Warwick factory. And it was a complete shock. We both looked at each other and said, what are you doing here?
0: Okay, I'd like to add that Alex and I have both traveled quite a bit with Dan, and it's hard not to run into someone that Dan knows. (laughs) Airports, bus stations, train depots, you always know someone. And I'd also like to bring it back and say if you'd like to see this amazing base, he does show it during the oral history interview. So go to NAM.org Library and Interviews, and you can get a look at this amazing base.
1: Well said. That's really neat. And we should also mention the name of the town in Germany because – I'm so grateful that uh, Alex is here on staff because we've worked with him many years, uh, for many years, and traveled with him. And he can pronounce the name of this uh, little village in uh, Germany, and Suzanne and I struggle with this a lot. Why don't you try? Okay, I think it's Marknokurken.
0: I'm going to hold my nose and say Marknokurken.
2: It's Magna magnocation, in so, case you want to really know.
1: So we're, we're, we were wrong. Close. We're wrong. That's okay. It's a beautiful town. It's yeah. a wonderful history for all those who would love to really get deep into the history of musical instrument making. This is the place to go. Uh, for hundreds of years, uh, this community has produced some of the finest instruments. And ranging from violins and flutes to Warwick basses and um, brass instruments by the J.A. Company, uh, just an amazing place. And they have a museum with all these antique instruments that it just outline some of the passion that people uh, put into creating these instruments. So I highly recommend being there. Uh, a wonderful place. And again, that's where we ran into TM and his energy, you know, with his dreadlocks, you know, wishing around as he turns around. Dan, what are you doing here? That was just so fun. Fun guy. And I hope you guys are picking up on his passion because um, you certainly feel it when you're around him. No doubt about it. So let's get back to the interview. I guess now we're going to hear um, TM talking a little bit about the uh, Bootsy Collins, Uh, you know those two I think were really thick as thieves, I think is a good term for it, you know, just great friends great admirers of each other, both being bass players, and then looking for opportunities to always work together I think is really kind of cool TM joined Bootsy's Funk United Tour in 2011, and some amazing footage is available on the internet of those guys just having dueling uh, bass competitions on stage, just really, really funky and fun and, uh, yeah, just really energetic. So, yeah, let's hear TM's comments about Bootsy.
3: Bootsy, I knew him for years because Bernie Worrell, the keyboard player, who did Flashlight and all that, we played together, and most people don't know this, we were in The Pretenders together. I knew him in the '80s, Wow. and I used to go to the Apollo Theater and see P-Funk play with Sly and the Family Stone opening. And I grew up with him, and when I finally met him, and we joined the Pretenders, I then started to integrate into P-Funk, but not joining P-Funk. And met Bootsy and everybody, and we just been friends. Oh, that's
1: really cool. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I admire him because you know he's original. Because nowadays, in a lot of magazines, it's who's the who's the fast fast. That's not. It's not. It's not how fast you play because nobody gets to the end of the song before the other. We're supposed to get to the finish line together. It's about how you play, your feel. And I was doing Nam shows, not to date me, back in the 80s. And we were all playing it back then. We had concerts after the show. And it was me, Billy Sheehan, Steve Vai, um, Van Halen was playing. I mean, it was all the best of the best. And a gentleman came up, black gentleman, and he just grabbed somebody's guitar and went The audience went nuts, because all the rest of us was going And he just went That gentleman's name is B.B. King. And he told us, he said, young boys, it's not how many notes you play, it's the right note at the right time with the right heart. That's all that counts, and he was right. It didn't matter how many notes we played. It's just, if, can you get an emotion from someone? Sometimes just one note. So that's how I think.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that, uh, that Nan has always been trying to do is encouraging people to become music makers, even if they're not going to be a professional, just to mm. have it as part of their life. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Absolutely. I just won an award for that. It was myself, Debbie Harry from Blondie. And the Indian and in the village people, remember them? YMZ. Well, Felipe and I, we talked. Actually, he called me this morning. And what we do is when I'm not on tour, which is only maybe two days a year, I'm always on tour, I teach kids. And I teach them from the age of 7 up to 16 in the middle schools. And I also teach college. But in universities, we talk more about the music business the way it is now. The kids, though, I let them, I bring my basses and I let them play it. And some of them, they have little hands like this, I put them in my hand, put it on the bass, and for the first time in their lives they get to go and that changes their life just to do that. And they found out that the kids do much better in math, sciences, and everything else when they're allowed to be creative. So I'm an advocate, a serious advocate about getting instruments in the hands of kids. That is too important. Even if they don't play, at least let them experience it. What does that feel like? What does that feel like? What does that feel like? Or this, and then you'd be surprised. So I'm an advocate for that.
1: That's really neat. And what have you seen as a result of working with some of those kids? I mean, there must be some fun mm.
3: experiences. The award came because my success rate right now, thank God, is 80%. My job was to get them off the computer and the texting. And I don't understand it because back in my day we had pagers. Remember those? I have a session. Because New York we used to strap a bass on and you would see a pager. You would call, it was a thing called radio registry. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. And myself, Will Lee, all of us. Anthony Jackson, Marcus Miller, we were all on this radio registry and you'd see a page, you call, you have a jingle, I'm on my way. We had a business, we made money, now you don't do that. So, I mean, I see with these kids, the minute you get them doing this, the LOL, OMG, ABC, whatever the heck they're talking about on this thing, they start slowing down on that and getting more on this. And the, www, whatever the heck I www.whatevertheheckiwant.com also slows down. And that's what we're trying to do, is to get them a little bit away from the computer, more towards this. No offense to Xbox and I don't even know that stuff, but... I would rather see them doing this because that stimulates other parts of the brain other than just sitting there the whole day trying to, what do they do with these games? Jack somebody's car or go to space or... I would rather see them doing this. I'm an advocate for that. Seriously. I've gotten off planes coming from tours and I was raggedy and I walked right into the school and I started talking to them and, you know, inspiring them off the computer. And... I have these little labels now, and I put them on everybody's cell phone and put the cell phones in my plastic bag, put the plastic bag behind me, and they're not allowed to do this. And I don't think we should force them, but egg them on not to completely go into this. I mean, do you want to stand on the OMG LOL? No. It gets on my nerves. They don't talk to each other anymore. There's no more communication. And Miles Davis said to me, he said, blood.' that's what he called me, Have ears bigger than your head. Have what? Who bigger than what? Uh, He said, listen, it's a conversation. So if you're playing your sax and we're playing, you go, good morning. I say, hello. The drums goes, I'm here. Me too. It's a conversation. We're talking to each other musically, but nevertheless, if you're listening, we can have magic. That's what Motown was about. You just can't sit there and play and don't listen. So we teach them how to listen. How to listen to what you say, then I respond to you. That's the magic of a rhythm section. The magic of music. The magic of what TVs have, what computers have, what cell phones have. They have one button in common called the off button. Use it. Click. Sorry, I'm an advocate. (laughs) I'm passionate about it.
1: That's really great. Yeah.
3: Sorry, I gave you too much information. No, no. I,
1: well, you know, when you were talking about like, the benefits of being a music maker, you know, in math and so on and so Thanks. forth, But what for, for you, how, how, how has it benefited your life? How can you put that to words?
3: Well, uh, in college, I was a med major. No one knows that. Although I don't think anybody watching this would let me take their blood samples the way I look. But um, I was a med major being a medical lab tech, and um, I was studying and doing quite well. And we were doing pathology, endocrinology, we were doing, studying a lot, microbiology. I was studying all that stuff. I know I don't look like it. But I would have what they called back then a Sony Walkman. Remember those? Cassette tapes. And I hid the uh, earphones in my hair and I was listening to Jimi Hendrix. Purple Haze! So one day my professor came and I'm sitting there with my eyes because he went, ouch. Uh, Could you take the headphones out? I said, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. His name is Professor Heller. He looked at me, I expected to hear, how dare you listen to me? He said, you know what? Do you want to be a half-assed lab tech or a great musician? What's it, a great musician? He said, take a leave of absence and pursue that because that's where your heart is. And he said, the worst thing you can do is fail. He said, or not make it the way you want and then you come back to school and finish. And that was 30 something odd years ago, I've never been back. Thank God for him and he's still my best friend. And I pursued what I do. He said, do you wanna sit in a lab and be watching the clock? Oh God, five is coming, I wanna go home. Or do you wanna have a passion? I never turned around since. That's what I learned. Remember, follow your dreams and your dreams will follow you. So here I am.
1: That's wild. Yeah. Yeah, that's me.
3: But I thought he was going to be angry, you know, because I was listening to Hendrix while he was teaching violin. <laughs> he said, no, go play this best advice I ever got.
0: Well, I really hope you enjoyed that segment. I thought it was interesting that uh, TM Stevens went from lab tech to musician because I went from lab tech to videographer. So um, I'm trying to think the relationship between pipetting and using the centrifuge and um, the sterilizer, how it relates to music. I'm sure it's there somewhere.
1: (laughs) Also, it would be kind of fun to think about. I I also worked in a lab for a short period of time, and thinking about the people in lab coats next to you, and one of them is T.M. the the future TM Stevens. It's kind of cool. (laughs) I wonder if he had his dreadnoughts then. (laughs) Well, he chose
2: a different path, I think, luckily.
1: Yes, for us, for (laughs) sure. Yes, yes.
2: and. He became a studio musician and uh, played with Al Foster, the drummer of Miles Davis. And in the next segment, we'll hear T.M. Stevens talk about all the changes in the music industry. What he is worried about is that the future generations of music makers are not going to be as creative as they have been in the past because of all the technology that's developing. He is a strong advocate in music education and in creativity, In the next segment, he's also talking about influences he got from Miles Davis.
0: Miles Davis was a huge influence on T.M. Stevens, even though they only played together for one session in 1978 for Columbia Records.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting that um, he was open for that experience. You know, maybe it wasn't something that went on to become a record, but T.M. was a sponge. You know, he took in everything he could and he learned so much that that Maybe we say only one day. But how many times during this one interview did he mention Miles Davis? How many times did he mention him in other conversations that we have had with him? I mean, it was a really impactful moment. And I think that ever since then, he has been looking to provide that for other people. He wants to do that for so many people
3: and has
1: for so many people.
3: You know, and that's what Miles said to me. He said to me, he said, TM, think of ourselves, meaning him as a giant tree giving shade to the ones coming up. If we protect them, they are allowed to grow. If they keep cutting the trees down, those trees have no protection, no safety and they die too. And that's what the industry has done. The way it is now.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I wanted to ask you about that because I remember reading uh, an article where you addressed, you know, the changes in the music industry, sure. you know, what what can be done.
3: Well, I mean, it's changed because I would say in the 80s, early 90s, I would be able to make an album and the money or the generated income from that was enough to carry for the year. And then the touring would be good to push your album and to sell product, but it wasn't, you you didn't have to. Now with all the downloads and no record companies, you have to tour, but you have to tour a little too much. And then that's how we sell product as well. I sell more CDs. I outsold the the CD company by four times just being on tour. (laughs) Selling real CDs, I mean. So the good part of that is you see your fans. I'm good at live, that's what I do best. But the bad part of it is it wears you out. You know, on a plane, traveling seven hours a day. (laughs) But now we have to tour. Um, The good side of that is to keep people interested in real music. We have to be in their face. Otherwise, you go the way of the dinosaur, unfortunately, and become extinct. Mm. So I stay in their face, but it's hard. It's not easy. Not easy to get on a plane and here we go again. But I did it maybe 10 times in 2010. Wow. I'm doing a month long plus tours. Yeah. And you come home and you just fall on the floor, but. You know, we still sell a lot of CDs and there's still people who like real music. But the airwaves and the radio and your TV and your whatever people are looking at, it's all kind of fake. I mean, did you get to see New Year's performances? Not to down them, nobody sang for real if you watched it. Hmm. Did you watch? No. Oh, the singer was singing, everybody. And the music's (laughs) going, (laughs) it's okay. They went to do a spin and they're still singing. That's impossible. Oops, they had to get back on the mic. So it's kind of pretentious, computer oriented. It's not real. We had to play for real. All that James Brown, Pretenders, Tina Turner, I played on that for real. And nobody quantized me. Thank God. <laughs> Quantizing is not human, ladies and gentlemen. It's, it's uh, slowing up, speeding down, playing harder, playing softer, those are all human. When you do that, you take the humanity out of it and now it becomes a robot. Mm-hmm. And that's why people, the ears don't, it's hard to take that because it's too perfect. Right. Yeah, I go to a session now and the kids go, come on T, play your thing. I go, thanks, but well, just just started. No, 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 we we'll sample, copy, paste, copy. That's not playing. I said, let me play, I can paint. Make the whole song. Well, maybe the second chorus won't be as same as the first. Well, that's the idea. Stupid. <laughs> it's called human. So that's what we're trying to get him back to. Yeah. Yeah. If you're playing on a two-five-one progression, you're not gonna play the same way twice. That's right. Even if you wanted to. But that's the beauty of art. It's not supposed to be perfect, mechanical. It's supposed to move. And maybe the way you played the first chorus and you play it differently, you're going to inspire us. Miles never really spoke to us. I don't know if you know this. When we're playing, if he didn't like the way it went, all he would do would walk on stage and he'd play two notes. You probably heard this. Bop, bop. We would slide into where he went. And that's where he wanted us to go. He didn't have to say anything. So I said, Miles, how, how do you do this? How do you get such great bands and you're such a great leader? He said, to him, the best leaders are no leaders at all. What? He said, it's not how you lead, it's who you pick. If I picked you on the horn, means you're perfect for my music. I don't have to tell you. You're going to play instinctively what I need. And he says, if the band goes that way and I want, to, I want it to go that way, I just nudge it. I said, oh, you go up and tell us? No. I just play three, four notes and you'll go back to where you need to be. So that's what he told me. Sometimes the best leader is no leader at all. Mm. He said, stop playing music. Let the music play you. And that's what I've been trying to do ever since. That's wild. Yeah. said, stop thinking. Click! (laughs) That's your your Macintosh computer. That's your filter. Let that do it. And he was right. So sometimes I don't think, I just play. Let the music take me.
1: Yeah. That's great. That's awesome. You know, it's a little unfair, but like, I w- I would love to ask uh, to have you tell me about one or two of your favorite uh, um, programs or you know uh, projects that you worked on.
3: Ah, uh, well, I've been ranting and raving about it, but I mean, obviously, James Brown was one of my. I grew up on him. He was one of my favorite bands to be with. Uh, Miles, of course, incredible. You know, because I was living in uh, 17th Street then in Manhattan. And I got a call from a Japanese lady. Mushy-mushy! Hi, T.M. Can you come do a session? Because I had done the Brecker Brothers. Remember them? Yeah. I had done a Brecker Brothers record, and I had also done an Al Foster record. And uh, I didn't realize I was playing jazz or anything. I just played what I played. And they said, there's a young guy coming up on the scene. We got to get him. So Al Foster recommended me for miles. I get this call and uh, back then we didn't say no. Can you play Bartok? Yeah, I didn't know how to play it but I always said yes and tried. I did a, a, a Broadway play called Your Arms Too Short the Box of God by Vinette Carroll and the guy goes, well you know this is a Broadway show you have to read, can you read yes? I couldn't, they gave me a manuscript that thick, gospel play. So what I did, we went into rehearsal and I watched the piano play, because you know gospel music, the left hand. And I'm watching, and the guy's going, Hallelujah! Let me copy it. I have a good ear. So about three months into the play, the, the director came down and go, Mr. Stevens, would you come here a second? I went, yeah. We found out you couldn't read. How? Because you're not playing a damn thing we wrote on the chart. <laughs> Oops. He says, you're playing with the piano players playing and you made up your own bass lines. I am I fired? He said, no. Because we can get some guy who's come out of Berkeley that can read every note and be cold with it, or somebody who's playing with his entire heart. We'd rather have the heart so we've decided to rewrite the book to what you're playing. I'm not fired? No, keep doing what you're doing. We love it, you know? So at the end of the day, my understudy came And by that time, they rewrote the book and he had to read it. His name, the understudies, Marcus Miller, (laughs) just got out of school, music and art. Really? Yeah. And then I went on the road with Nard and Michael Wallin, and we did that hit, I Should Have Loved You and all that. And then the rest, I kept going. But the guy told me, we don't care about the technical. We can read every note in the thing. We want somebody just to play his butt off. And that's how I learned how to read. Because I knew what I was playing, and when they rewrote the book, then I started looking at those black notes on the paper because I knew what I played and I put it together. That's how I learned how to read.
1: That's really wild.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but the guy said you can't read a damn thing because you ain't playing nothing on the paper. <laughs> but he liked my heart. Yep, that's
1: so, right. That's
3: how I made it. That is really cool. Yeah. That's a neat chance to, to show what you got, too. I mean, Broadway is pretty strict you know, you have to have so many skills to do that. And I just had passion, and they liked the passion. Yeah, and then
1: you mentioned some of the hits that you were on, that must have been fun
3: too. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, um, which, what kind of music you like best? I
1: like everything. Well, (laughs)
3: that's what happened, I mean, uh, The Pretenders had a bass player in there They really wasn't, he was taking two, three, four days to learn one song. I was hot on the scene then. It was Will Lee first, Anthony Jackson and I came into the New York scene, I was third. And then uh, when those guys didn't do it, you know, they called me. And I got called because the bass player was slow. And I was like, okay, we want to play, you know, anyway. You know the song? And that was called Don't Get Me Wrong. Don't get me wrong. And then because I had studied a lot of, uh, one of my favorite bass players, James Jameson, I knew how to play those Motown-type fills, and Chrissy was like, yeah! And she said, well, is it going to take you about two days to get this? Nope. Leave here, go have dinner, and come back. And then I wrote all the songs out on a piece of paper, the chord changes. And that evening I did about four of them. Knocked them out. (laughs) Including Don't Get Me Wrong, and that's how I got in the band. She goes, you're joining the band. I'm joining the band. That's how I did it. Good so she, Tina Turner, oh my God, she's um, a powerhouse I've never met before. We went in the studio, and let me tell you something, from her I learned, because in the studio you think that you could sit down like this and play. And she said, no, darling, that translates to the people's ear. You got to play like you're playing live. I go, what do you mean? Nobody can see us. She said, they can feel it. So she get on a 57 Mike, and she, we're going to run over the song, she talks real fast, and hey, we're going to get down, we're going to get it down, are y'all ready, y'all ready, yeah, okay, what do you want, right, and we started playing it, that's what I want, and she'd run into the vocal booth, and while she's singing, she's still doing the Tina thing, making the moves, and I'm going, wow, she's crazy, but then we did Simply the Best Remember that one, and you could hear her passion Actually, on the record, even though you couldn't see, you could tell she was in the studio getting it off. And she and Joe Cocker, um, they didn't allow overdubs, really. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Oh, mm, that's why you called me yeah, here today.
1: Right. I got
3: something new. Yeah. Joe Cocker and Tina recorded with bands. And even though we can overdub today, um, we were sitting in the studio with Joe Cocker, and he goes, Okay. I want to do "Unchain My Heart by Ray Charles. Now you remember the original bass line was Unchained My That was it. To me that sounded like Batman. I'm not gonna play it. You're playing it. I'm not playing it. Playing I'm not. It. If you don't get it right, you're fired. Right. I took my chances. <laughs> what would you do? And I just went Unchained My Heart. I got that from Sly and the Family Stone. And that became his biggest hit. And from there we became friends, and then I did all of his records. So somebody would hit a bad note. Stop! Start again! Uh, Mr. Cocker, uh, we could overdub that part. He said, yeah, but that's not magic. He said the overdub is more technical, but maybe he may play something that causes you to play something, we have magic. So the her and him, we had to do the whole thing as a whole band period, (laughs) period, somebody made a mistake, the guitar player went clink, stop, started again, and we played all as a unit. Was that stressful? Sometimes it is, but the idea is if we all play together, we're gonna inspire each other. Remember I said we don't play the same thing twice? Mm -hmm. The next take, you may play something that causes me to play something that causes the drummer to play something, and we have something else that we never thought we would get takes more time and to this day I use computers now in my studio, but I don't allow them to copy and paste the chorus. I do it complete. Hmm. Period. Hmm.
1: Very, very interesting.
3: Yeah. Think about that. I'd rather get your full performance. I don't want a sampling. If you took a brilliant take and hit maybe a wrong note or two, we can deal with that because that's the technology. But I want the real you. I don't want some copy and paste thing. Command C, copy. Command V, paste. You know, that's not art. I want to hear what you do. And if you get a squeak on your horn, God bless it. That's meant to be there. I'm into organic. Vegan funk. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh! <Ow! laughs>
1: Trouble give me some vegan funk. Vegan funk! <laughs> Well, thank you so much, you guys, for joining us. I can't tell you how delighted it is to hang out with Suzanne and Alex at this podcast, knowing that we are sharing some of these stories of the remarkable T.M. Stevens. What a delight it is to be his friend and to know him and to have captured this interview. Um, My final thought, as we like to conclude uh, each podcast, is Shaka Zulu, baby.
2: And vegan funk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What is my final thought? Um, I feel inspired to take up the bass. Okay, I think you should. And dress a little funkier. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, with that, bye, everybody. Avidisin, darling.
1: Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino.
0: Suzanne Del Fiorentino
1: and Alex Rossner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at nam.org.